Gangsta party. Party there. A party there. <laughs> Ain't nothing party. but a gangsta party. Party. Like party. party. Let me hit that. <laughs> Ain't nothing but a gangsta party. Welcome to DFS MVP, Daily Fantasy Sports' most valuable podcast presented by 4 for 4 Football. I'm 4 for 4 Senior DFS Editor Chris Raybon, joined as always by my guy, Mr. TJ Hernandez. You ready for week one, TJ? I'm very ready. I've been living on a very high caffeine diet this week, getting ready for the week. Uh, I'm ready to start making some lineups and and, uh, spitting out some good advice for all the listeners. Oh, yeah. This is definitely one of those no-sleep weeks, grinding out here, trying to get all the content ready, trying to get all the lineups in, doing all the research. Let's get to it. Week one picks. Before we do, the intro song that played us in was two of America's most wanted, Tupac, Snoop, All Eyes on Me, 1996 classic song hope you guys enjoyed it you'll hear it again on the outro let's get right into the picks for week one if you're not familiar with dfs mvp what we do is we go through each position give a couple guys we like talk about the upside talk about the downside give you guys some cool stats then we will get into our dfs theory segment we got a really good one today it's going to cover a bunch of topics including why we should start getting away from using points per dollar and how we should be thinking in terms of probabilities in DFS and distributions, floor ceiling, a bunch of really core concepts to really take your DFS game to the next level. So that's coming at the end, but let's get right into the quarterback. Quarterback. TJ, who you got in week one, man? Yeah, I'm going to start probably with one of the guys that's going to be among the most popular plays, but someone that um, I'm really uh, excited about playing. That's Marcus Mariota, who's $7,800 on FanDuel and $6,800 on DraftKings. Uh, If we look at the 4-for-4 projections, he is a top-two projected quarterback value on FanDuel, uh, and I think that's pretty important in a week where we're going to get to this, but any slight savings that you can get at any position not running back especially in cash games is going to be really important because I think the key to the week is going to be whether or not you can get David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell into the same lineup on FanDuel Marcus Mariota is just priced slightly just below Aaron Rodgers uh Russell Wilson so that that slight savings really could be the difference in a, in a week where a cup a couple hundred dollars um is really going to be important the titans raiders game has the second highest over under of the week at 50.5 points the titans are favored at home with the fourth highest implied point total on the main slate uh from the work we've done at four for four that you've done in the dfs playbook we know that uh being a favorite being at home and having a high implied team total are all really important factors for picking a dfs quarterback and we know Mariota has a lot of touchdown upside he has the best red zone touchdown rate in the league uh, since joining the league and his overall touchdown rate since his rookie year is only bested by 
Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. So really elite company there. Uh, I did write up Mariota earlier in the offseason as someone that should regress a little bit because especially in the red zone, his touchdown rate is a little bit out of whack. I don't think it's sustainable, but it should uh, it shouldn't start in week one. The, the Raiders have a secondary that got toasted by Jared Goff a few weeks ago in the preseason. You want to take preseason with a grain of salt, but that's a carryover from what we saw last year. The Raiders uh, were pretty susceptible through the air. Like I said, Mariota is great in the red zone, but the the Raiders allowed the second most pass touchdowns from outside the red zone last year. Uh, Mariota has a has a couple deep weapons in Corey Davis and Richard Matthews. So we could see that come to fruition in this game. And Marriott is also good for about 20 to 30 yards on the ground every game. So there's a lot of uh, arrows pointing up for Mariota. The one thing to be concerned about is that Tennessee is traditionally run heavy under Mike Malarkey. Um, and early in the season, the games with the highest over-unders don't necessarily play out as the highest scoring games. Those games in the second tier, at least over the last 10 years, um, tend to score about as much as those games uh, at the top tier. So that would probably keep me from going crazily overweight on this game. Uh it's it's going to be highly owned anyway, but I really like Marcus Mariota in this spot. Yeah, and I think what you said at the end was a, a key point and a reason why I'm actually happy to, even on FanDuel, where he's $700 more, pay up for Matt Ryan on the road, who actually has a higher um, implied point total than Marcus Mariota and the Titans, the Falcons implied point total is 28 points on the road this week against the Bears. And like Mariota, Matt Ryan is another quarterback who is expected to regress negatively this season. I'm not exactly sure that it's going to happen the way people think. Uh, A lot of people point to Kyle Shanahan's departure as a reason for Matt Ryan and the Falcons offense as a whole not being able to perform as well in 2017. But I don't necessarily think that Kyle Shanahan could just be um, praised as the, the full on reason why the Falcons did well in 2016. If you also look at it, Shanahan came over in 2015 and Matt Ryan had one of his worst seasons. Um, Kyle Shanahan also was slow getting the plays in. Steve Sarkeesian, the new OC, is going to run a much more up-tempo offense and Kyle Shanahan had some questionable play calling. We saw that come out in the Super Bowl. So I don't think that just because they have a new offensive coordinator that the Falcons are just going to go in the gutter. I don't think Matt Ryan will repeat his lofty numbers from last year, but he threw the seventh fewest pass attempts in the league and the Falcons ran the seventh fewest plays in the league. That's likely to regress positively. And in this matchup against the Bears, I expect the Falcons to come out throwing. And that's because the Bears have a really strong front seven. Eli Goldman, Akeem Hicks on the D-line, Danny Trevathan, Jarrell Freeman, Pernell McPhee. A lot of good players on that front seven. But then you look at the back end and you have you have Marcus Cooper, who ranked 89th of 139 cornerbacks in passer rating allowed. You have Prince of Mukamara, who ranked 124th out of 139 qualified corners. Uh, that saw more than 20 or more targets last year in quarterback rating allowed. So the Bears' weakness is on the outside. Matt Ryan is throwing to Julio Jones, pretty much throwing to one of the top three receivers in the league. And we all, we already know the Falcons can play it both ways. They can play it with Julio as the decoy, 
or they can play with Julio as the main target. Either way, I think it works out really well for Matt Ryan. And I found over the offseason in the DFS playbook strategy, I talked about it, the quarterback article, last seven games tends to be the most uh, predictive sample size. And over Matt Ryan's last seven games, including the postseason, he has multiple touchdowns in every single one of those games. Um, I'll talk about this a little more later, but in four for fours, cash game odds, something new we're doing this year where we're calculating the odds of a player hitting cash game value. Um, that's something if you're familiar with my DFS playbook articles, you probably read about it. Cash game target score. So Matt Ryan is top five in that metric on both sites. Um, 43% on FanDuel, 47% chance on DK. He's 8.5K on FanDuel and he's uh, 6.9K on DK. I, I like it. I think Matt Ryan might go a little bit overlooked um, just because of all the regression talk, but I, I'm definitely going to have exposure to him this week. Running back. TJ, um, who are you looking at in week one? Yeah, I'll save the uh, the very popular plays uh, and, and jump down to some guys that might not be as obvious. I was really excited about playing Jaquiz Rogers, but that game, uh, Tampa Bay and Miami got moved to week 11, so I will not be playing Jaquiz Rogers in week one. But uh, I do really like Todd Gurley now because, as I mentioned, I think a lot of people are going to be trying to get to uh, DJ and Bell in cash, which I think is probably the right move. Um, You're most likely not going to be rostering Gurley in your cash game lineups, but I really do want to get a healthy amount of exposure to him this week. He's $7,300 on FanDuel, $6,000 on DraftKings, which makes him a top four value on both sites according to the 4 for 4 lineup generators. Indianapolis projects as a twenty as twenty uh, fourth in adjusted fantasy points allowed to running backs this season, and the Rams are going to be at home favored by three and a half against a Colts team that's going to be led by Scott Tolzien. I think the way that that game can play out with Tolzien under center is that the Rams could just find themselves in a not only a very positive game script, but just with a lot of uh, really favorable field position. I just don't know if the Colts are going to be able to sustain drives with Tolzien under center. We've seen how bad this offense can look without Andrew Luck. Um, I don't think they're going to have much of a run game to to help them sustain those drives. So I really like Gurley in this spot here. Uh, the, the obvious concerns are that it is the Rams. Uh, they really struggled on the offensive front last year. Uh, Jeff Fisher obviously was uh, had a big hand in making this offense very anemic, and you always kind of worry about a Jared Goff offense, but the Rams did add left tackle Andrew Whitworth, who's a pretty good pass blocker, and then they also added center John Sullivan, who played under uh, new coach uh, Sean McVay in Washington, and McVay's expected to give this offense a, a pretty uh, noticeable boost, so I think that probably the trend is positive, more so than we're going to see more of what we saw last year, so I'm pretty confident in Gurley, uh, really in any format, if for whatever reason you don't want to roster one of the top two running backs i'm fine with Gurley in cash games this week oh yeah i love Gurley this season i think he probably has the best shot of any of the second tier running backs to finish as the top three uh the third running back behind Le'Veon bell and dj um in week one if i'm choosing between Le'Veon and dj i think a lot of people probably are going dj i'm going Le'Veon. 
I don't mind the layoff. I think anyone who's worried about Le'Veon because he was holding out or whatever you want to call it all offseason, didn't participate in any camp or drills or preseason or anything like that. I think worrying about it is silly for a guy who came into the league, lost 20 pounds, taught himself how to essentially be one of the best receiving running backs that we've ever seen, learned essentially a whole new running style that, you know, makes him now one of the better runners we've seen in this generation and, and did all that while, you know, able to, 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 to have a, a little weed habit on the side. You know, I, I think Le'Veon Bell is, is a guy you don't really worry about when he's on the field, he's going to ball. Um, he, 28 touches per game last year. No one else had more than 24 per game. So Bell is going to be an every down guy. They're already talking about 30 touches for him. The Steelers have little depth behind him. James Connor and Terrell Watson. I expect Bell to be on the field for 100% of the Steelers snaps unless they, uh, any snapper running back is in, I should say, if they go, maybe if they go five wide or something like that, he might be off the field, but I expect him to play every single running back snap in week one against the Browns. The Browns defensive lineman, Miles Garrett, ankle banged up. Danny Shelton, knee just started practicing. So those guys aren't a hundred percent. And in terms of cash game odds, Le'Veon Bell, 73% odds on FanDuel. 65% odds on DraftKings. You no know, other player is close except DJ and Bell has some separation there. And just to give you an idea of how ridiculous, um, Bell's odds of in the seventies and sixties are, most players aren't, aren't going above the high forties. So Le'Veon Bell's probably about the, the safest play, um, on the board here in week one and on the road. Ben Roethlisberger, we know he struggles some, especially in these 1 p.m. starts, as Rich Rebar has pointed out many a time. But Le'Veon Bell on the road picks up the slack. Over the past three seasons, on the, on the road, Bell is averaging 106 rushing yards per game compared to 84 at home. 0.73 rushing touchdowns on the road compared to 0.37 at home, so he's doubling up there. You know, just a... a, a a really dominant player everywhere, but especially on the road. And I think he's going to eat against the Browns in week one, have no hesitation playing him in all formats. Um, let's just go right to these wide receivers. Wide receiver. Give me two guys that you like uh, in this first week of the season. Yeah, I'm going to give you two guys from the same game. Uh, one probably is going to be a very popular play. One might be flying under the radar. So I'm going to, going to be looking at this uh, Seattle Green Bay game. And, and this is going to be one of the more popular games on the slate. Again, um, a game with a very high over-under 51 points. Doug Baldwin, 7,500 on FanDuel, 6,700 on DraftKings. He is a top three FanDuel value overall on 4 for 4. And then if we filter to look just at the main slate, he's a top five value um, on DraftKings. He's going to be facing a Packers defense that projects 29th in adjusted fantasy points allowed to wide receivers. A lot of people 
are a little bit hesitant to look at matchup numbers uh, early in the season, uh, especially at positions like wide receiver or tight end. But if we look at historical data, especially at the extremes at wide receiver, uh, fantasy points allowed carries over very strongly from year to year with a correlation of 0.66. So when I say the extremes, I'm talking about uh, teams that finished in the top five or the bottom five against the position. It's really hard to uh, improve without a really uh, noticeable signing, and the, the Packers just didn't do that this offseason. Their secondary is probably going to be one of the worst in the league again this year. They allowed the third highest red zone touchdown rate in the league last season, and if uh, if everybody lines up as expected, Doug Baldwin figures to draw Demarius Randall in the slot for most of the game. If we look at playerprofile.com, uh, out of all of the cornerbacks in the league that played at least eight games, Demarius Randall allowed the second most fantasy points per snap, the fourth most yards per game, and the fourth most catches per game. So uh, a lot of positives here for Doug Baldwin, not just in a good matchup overall, but it's going to be lined up across from one of the worst cornerbacks in the league for most of the game. Uh, the the issue always with Baldwin is his target volumes never really match his production. He's always been kind of in that that seven to eight target per game range. You really want your elite receivers to be uh, flirting with that double digit target. So that means he's been somewhat touchdown dependent. I think that that can go up this year. Um, the the Seattle offense has been trending towards the pass every single year since Russell Wilson's uh, rookie year. That It's increased every year. Uh, they have talked about returning to uh, the run a little bit, but I mean, the, their weapons are on the outside and Russell Wilson. And in this game, I just don't think that that's what's going to happen. Uh, Doug Baldwin uh, attacking the secondary, I think, is a really fantastic play. And then staying in this game, all of the the receivers on the Packers are viable options. But if you're looking for the one guy that can differentiate your lineup, if you are going to attack this game, I think it's Randall Cobb. He's $5,300 on FanDuel and $5,900 on DraftKings. So we actually see one of the bigger price discrepancies between the two sites this week with Randall Cobb. He's the wide receiver 21 on DK, but the wide receiver 33 on FanDuel. That's always a really good value indicator, especially in week one when we don't have any in-season information to go on, and we're speculating, obviously, from the off-season. The reason that his price is really important on DraftKings, at least to me, is because he makes for pretty much a perfect price pivot off of his teammate, Devontae Adams, and then also off of Pierre Garçon and Jamison Crowder, who figure to be uh, much more popular options in that price range. So pivoting uh, in a price range is always a really nice way to differentiate your lineups without changing up everything else. And then if we look at how Green Bay is most likely to attack this Seattle pass defense, um, it's over the middle. That's where Seattle's traditionally struggled against slot wide receivers and tight ends. And with Martellus Bennett now there, the Packers haven't, I mean, uh, yeah, the Packers haven't had a, a reliable tight end in uh, quite some time. So Bennett can open up things for Cobb. And if he is going to bounce back, I, I think it can be the presence of Bennett that really helps that out. Um, obviously, the downside for Cobb is that he is competing with all those guys that I mentioned, competing with Adams, competing with Bennett, and of course, Jordy Nelson uh, for targets and touchdown upside. But uh, again, it, 
you don't really have to own much of him to be overweight this week. If you have him in maybe 5% of your lineups, you're probably going to be uh, overweight on the field. So I I really like targeting him where everyone else is going to be on this game, but probably ignoring that one player. I love that, Cohen. I love Cobb this season in general. I believe in uh, – you guys probably you might, you guys might have – read about it in my uh, bold predictions article that me yourself and Michael Beller did on sports illustrated. Um, but I also tweeted it when Scott Barrett mentioned it as well, but I think Cobb outscores Devonte Adams this season. If you look at what happened last season, Adams was coming off a year in which he was really banged up, had a really tough year in 2015, wasn't even being drafted in most fantasy drafts. And he emerged as Aaron Rodgers' second option, but a big part of that was that Cobb got banged up last season. Cobb was in and out of the lineup. He missed about a quarter of the team's snaps. He missed a few games, and he played hurt in many others. And now, you know, Cobb is healthy again, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that Cobb will will outscore Adams. Adams was only out-targeting Cobb by about 1.1% targets per game last season even with all the things going on with Cobb and you know if you look at the pricing I mean Cobb and Adams essentially the same price but yet in in fantasy drafts Adams is going in the fourth round and Cobb is going in the eighth or the ninth in in a lot of drafts and I, I don't think that's I don't think that's exactly correct I think they should be going a lot closer together I think Cobb has a lot of touchdown upside despite his size he's actually got the best touchdown rate inside the five yard line of all of the Green Bay receivers even better than Jordy Nelson so whether it's Cobb or it's just the fact the way Mike McCarthy is able to scheme up plays for Cobb in close um, he tends to do well I we saw him put up the three touchdown game in the playoffs against the New York Giants. So I love Randall Cobb, not just in week one as a contrarian play, but um, this season. But as far as the receivers I am looking at in week one, let's start with Larry Fitz. He is 6,400 on FanDuel, 5,900 on DraftKings. He's another one of those players with top five cash game odds on both sites, right around 44%. And Larry Fitzgerald, the good thing about him is he tends to fade down the stretch every season. And what that does is that essentially lowers his salary for the next season. So right now he's very affordable, but over the past three years in weeks one through six, he averages 75 yards per game and 0.6 touchdowns per game on 8.2 targets. Okay. In week seven on over the past three seasons, his yardage drops to 63 yards per game. His touchdowns get cut in half to 0.3. And that's all on more targets per game, 8.8, over over those last uh, 10 weeks of the season. So Larry Fitzgerald just tends to run out of gas down the stretch. It's happened enough that I think it's more than just random variants. I think, you know, as good as he is, um, as he gets older, it's just tough to stay at peak performance level um, for the entire season. That doesn't mean he's bad down the stretch. It just means he's usually better when he's fresher to open the season. And he'll be going against the Lions. He plays a lot in the slot. The Lions slot corner is probably going to be Quandre Diggs again. Quandre Diggs out of 139 players with 20 or more targets last season, cornerbacks that is, 
Quandre Diggs finished dead last, 139th in passer rating allowed, 129.5. So Larry Fitz should be able to do work. Of course, the downside with Larry and the Cardinals offense in general could probably even apply it to David Johnson to some degree, although I don't think he's really, it really matters with him. But the Lions do play keep away because they know that their defense is not their strong point. But I don't think that will matter. Um, too much in week one. I, I still think Larry Fitzgerald's in for a high volume role with the clear mismatch, um, among Cardinals receivers versus Lions cornerbacks. And then for a value option, Kendall Wright is kind of, I guess, going to be the value chalk. I'm okay with it. 5,200 on FanDuel, 3,200 on DraftKings. He averaged 8.7 targets per game with Dowell Loggins as the offensive coordinator in Tennessee in 2013, 6.0 for the rest of his career. So that's a 2.7 target per game difference. Um, they went out and once Loggins had a chance to go out and get right um, this season, they did. They brought him in. Then we all know what happened. You know, Alshon Jeffries let go and Cameron Meredith goes down with the season ending injury. And now you have a situation where in week one, the Bears, their implied point total is, you know, well, the, their opponent implied point total, the Falcons, as I mentioned, is 28. So the Bears are probably going to have to throw at some point. We know they want to establish the run early with Jordan Howard, but when they look to move the chains, they're going to have to throw. Kevin White is yet to look like himself, yet to live up to his draft pick. He, he had to relearn how to run in the offseason. So I think Wright will be the number one receiver. I think he'll be that safe bet for volume. I think he has a decent shot at getting to double digit targets, especially if the Falcons come out throwing as I suspect and, 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 and can put some points on the board. So, you know, right going against the Falcons, you know, inside corner, uh, Brian Poole, um, that's a better matchup than Trufant on the outside and Alford. So really okay with right. You know, I think of course, there's some risk in terms of this is his first game with the Bears. We really don't know exactly what they're going to do. We What we do know is that Mike Glennon targeted Wright um, more than any other receiver in the preseason. So we can hang our hats on that. But there's always going to be risk with a player who's in his first game with a new team. However, at a price only 700 above the minimum on FanDuel and $200 above the minimum on DraftKings, I think that's the kind of salary where you want to take a chance on that volume because at the end of the day, we know that projected volume is very important. I think Wright opens up a lot of things for you in terms of being able to get Bell and DJ in lineups and still having some flexibility to, to do some other things. So um, I'm, I'm good with Kendall Wright uh, this week. Tight end. TJ, who are you looking at at the tight end position? So one guy that I really like this week uh, is Tyler Eifert. He's $6,100 on FanDuel and $4,600 on DraftKings. He's basically the same price as Zach Ertz and Jamie Graham on FanDuel, who figure to be uh, pretty significantly higher owned. And again, talking about price pivots, I think that's a really nice way to go because he has as much, if not more, touchdown upside than uh, any not not only those two tight ends, but any tight end on the slate. And if he 
stays healthy and the Bengals progress positively, as I've suggested a lot this offseason, this, this entire pass offense should see an uptick in scoring. This might be the cheapest that you'll get Eifert all season. On, on DraftKings, you're getting him at a $1,600 discount relative to the tight end one. Um, when Tyler Eifert is on his hot streak, he's priced up there with those guys. So I think it's you You want to pounce now. Baltimore projects as a top 10 team against wide receivers, but they look to be just average versus tight ends. Now, again, those are just projections, but uh, if they do filter those passes over the middle of the field, Eifert has, uh, he's one of the best red zone touchdown scorers we've seen since he's came into the league. Now, the concern is though that touchdown rate isn't sustainable. I mean, he's scoring at like 40 plus percent on his career red zone looks, but I want that upside if I'm looking to differentiate my lineup, if I'm trying to spin off of the most popular plays. I'd rather have a player that we've seen put up those numbers before in an offense that moved the ball really efficiently last year. They were top 10 in yards per drive and percentage of drives that uh, made it to the red zone last year. That was without A.J. Green or Tyler Eifert for a lot of the season. So we know this offense can move the ball. It's just a matter of getting it in, in the end zone once they're there. And uh, with Tyler Eifert on the team, they should be really efficient at doing that. So I like this Bengals offense all year. And like I said, I just kind of want to pounce on Eifert uh, before he becomes too popular or too expensive. Yeah, that's a great call. I think Tyler Eifert's kind of going a little bit overlooked um, this season, just kind of in, in fantasy drafts as well, just because of the, the injury struggles he's uh, dealt with over uh, the last season, really. Um, I'm looking at, at tight end. It's probably going to be the chalk on DraftKings just because of his price. Zach Ertz, 3,500 on DK. He's 5,900 on FanDuel. Now, um, from week nine on last season, Zach Ertz outscored every single other tight end in the National Football League in fantasy scoring. He developed a real good chemistry with Carson Wentz. And that's, I, I really look at that as a positive that Ertz started to trend up. I know he tends to have more big games in the second half. He's like the anti Larry Fitzgerald, but I think it, it started very early in, in this, this year. And it was, it kind of correlated with Carson Wentz growing, um, as a quarterback. So I look at that as a positive. And it wasn't just the games with, with Jordan Matthews out in in those two games Ertz had some really big games but even if you take those two games out uh, Zach Ertz was still a top five tight end in per game scoring down the stretch last season over the second half 74 yards per game uh, 0.44 touchdowns seven catches a game over his last nine games last season so I think Zach Ertz just has tremendous upside and even on FanDuel where you're usually looking for those touchdown scorers First and foremost, I think Ertz is still very much in play in all formats because even though he's his career high in touchdowns is four, which is not good at all, he is one of the few tight ends in the league that has top-end wide receiver volume upside. He's had eight games in his career with eight or more catches. He's had four games in his career with 10 or more catches. So Ertz can put up wide receiver one numbers um, if given the volume and there's not many other tight ends you can say that for now 
So I think, you know, that some of that touchdown risk is kind of alleviated by his volume upside. And as I mentioned, he did score 0.44 TDs down the stretch um, last season over the last nine games, which is, would have come out to about seven over a full season, which is pretty solid. And what's really good for Ertz in week one is that Josh Norman is expected to shadow Alshon Jeffrey. So with that being said, Alshon Jeffrey is a receiver that tends to struggle somewhat against the top corners in the league. Carson Wentz, not a guy necessarily going to force it to him, especially I think, you know, Alshon being a new receiver. I think, I think Wentz is going to take what the defense gives him. I think Ertz has a chance to get double digit uh, targets once again in week one. So really like Ertz in all formats. Um, DraftKings tournaments, it's a little tougher because even though you really have a great price, and we'll talk about this more with GPP leverage, but um, that's a situation where he projects for upwards of 20% ownership, might even hit 30 just because of that $3,500 price tag. So we'll talk a little more about how to deal with that. I might want to go a little less than that percentage if you're building a whole portfolio of lineups. But fantasy football fans, you, you got to listen up. If you love fantasy football, then you need to try these new best ball leagues on my new favorite app. It's called Draft. It's a season-long league just like you play with your friends but with no management. Just set it and forget it. Once you're done drafting, that's it. Draft takes care of the hard work. You don't even have to set your lineup. Your best score gets automatically selected every week. You can draft a team anytime you want. Leagues start every couple of minutes, so you can join one right now. And the best part, there's no salary caps, and you can play for cold, hard cash. Leagues start from just $3, so there's a league for everyone it's so easy to start playing draft today. Just go to playdraft.com slash four for four. That's playdraft.com, the number four, the letters F-O-R, and the number four. And you can join a game in minutes. All new players get a free entry into a best ball draft when you make your first deposit. But you have to use my promo code four for four. That's right. Play a real money game for free just for using my promo code, the number four, the letters F-O-R, and the number for let's get into the kickers and the defense before we jump into our DFS theory segment. It's interesting. I know we both have kicker and defense from the same team at kicker. I got Greg Zerline minimum price on the Rams. They're a three and a half point home favorite. And that minimum price salary just gives you maximum flexibility with your lineup you can get bell and dj in there you can do some other things so i really like zerline in a game where we know that the colts are probably not going to be able to play ball control but at the same time we don't know exactly if the rams have gotten there yet in terms of what their offense is going to become which i think it will actually be a solid offense at some point i think sean McVay will have a really strong impact on jared goff we saw what McVeigh was able to do with Kirk Cousins. Now, we don't know exactly, you know, if that's all correlation or causation or what, but McVeigh was very involved with Kirk Cousins. And we did see Kirk Cousins kind of turn his career around in Washington these last few years, went from a turnover prone, mistake prone quarterback into a guy that, you know, weeds the league in, in completion percentage, doesn't throw many interceptions, you know, over eight and a half yards per attempt, you know, a lot of really good improvement in Kirk Cousins, and I think Sean McVay will also have a strong influence on Jared Goff. But in week one, I think 
settling for field goals seems like a likely scenario for the Los Angeles Rams against the Indianapolis Colts, who do not have a good defense either. So I'm all over Zerline at min price. TJ, um, talk about the Rams defense in this matchup. Uh, yeah, the Rams are $4,600 on FanDuel, $3,200 on DraftKings. If we look at the entire uh, week, looking at Thursday through Monday games, the Rams are the only defense that uh, project as a top five value on both sites. Uh, like you said, they're favored by three and a half at home. I already mentioned that they're going to be facing Scott Tolzien. Uh, their value is especially important on DraftKings where um, the defensive pricing is not as flat as it is on FanDuel. On FanDuel, it's pretty compact. So uh, the, the difference between something like the Rams and the Bills isn't so great that, that you might want to fade the Bills against the Jets. But on DraftKings, I think that's really important, especially in, in uh, cash games where, we're like I mentioned earlier in the pod, we're looking to save every dollar we can because I, I do think the move is to get DJ and Bell together in your cash game lineups. And then even in GPPs, I think that uh, Bills against the Jets and the, the Steelers against the uh, Browns are going to be so intriguing that even the Rams against Tolzien are probably going to come in slightly underowned against those uh, other two defenses. So with the with the price saving, especially on DraftKings against a quarterback that uh, has pretty much no uh, legitimate starting experience, I, I think the Rams can can really get after it here. And you always want to go with a at least have some exposure to under-owned defenses because it's such a variable position. Even the top projected values against the worst offenses aren't necessarily going to be the highest uh, scoring teams as consistently as other positions because something like a, a pick six or a, a punt return touchdown is going to swing scoring so quickly. So for that reason, I, I like the Rams um, a lot in pretty much every format this week. Most definitely. I think the Rams are a great play. I think the Bills are a great play. There's a lot of options at defense um, this week. Um, Justin Bailey is actually writing a, a really great article for our uh, premium subscribers, our DFS subscribers at 4 for 4, where he goes into the upside and downside of all the defenses options on this week's slate. does a really great job, so look out for that article. But yeah, there's a lot of really sneaky defenses that I think you can play at, at really low cost. And then, of course, there's about four really strong plays at, at the top of kind of the uh, uh, the salary spectrum there. Yeah, and in that article, Justin uh, highlights like – one of the biggest price discrepancies in any position uh, between uh, the the two websites. It's it's pretty crazy, and I can't figure out why. But uh, you're gonna have to check out the article to find that one. But a little little bit of teaser there. But now that we've got through the through the positions, uh, we're gonna get into the DFS theory segment. We. Well, especially you, but, but we've done a lot of work at, at 4 for 4 this year, just really trying to move towards, uh, thinking about DFS in a different way. I think one of, uh, the biggest problems that we see when we come across, especially new DFS players is there's, there's still this redraft mentality or traditional fantasy football mentality. And a, a lot of people just kind of want to know who they should be playing. And in DFS, you just can't think about it that way. You have access to the entire player pool, and we need to figure out a way to evaluate every single player on uh, an even playing field. And I don't think that 
as a whole, we've necessarily done that as efficiently as possible in the past. So, uh, Chris, I'm going to kind of let you run with how we are going to be thinking about uh, value and leverage and ownership at 444 this year and talk about the work that you've done uh, in coming up with some some uh, formulas and projections for the, for that data. Definitely. And I guess the best way to explain it is probably based um, on a conversation that me and you had uh, last night, TJ, when we probably should have been writing our articles, <laughs> but it was like, well, probably a little earlier your time, but it was like 3 a.m., my time, but I essentially said, you know, uh, the worst kind of Twitter is the Le'Veon Bell is too expensive, so you can't play him Twitter, or the David Johnson is too expensive, so you can't play him Twitter. He's not going to hit 4X Twitter. He's not going to hit 5X Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, all that. And the concept, the key concept here, and, you know, I think it's natural. When you first start at DFS, points per dollar just seems so natural. It's like, okay, Everyone has a salary, everyone has a projection, and I am trying to maximize the amount of points I score per dollar. So I think it's a natural, you know, to start. I, I, I started when I first started playing DFS. That's how I was analyzing, um, you know, projected value, but there's an big, big issue, two actually, two big issues with points per dollar. And the first issue is that it's linear. So, and this goes back to the, the, the David Bell, David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell thing. A higher salaried player does not need to hit the same multiplier as a low salaried player. So let's say you're on DraftKings, you're trying to score five points per thousand to hit that 250 point big tournament score. If Le'Veon Bell is 9K or, or whatever, you know, he, you do, he does not need to score you 45 points. He does not need to hit 5X value to be a valuable player in that tournament what actually needs to happen is that all of the other players in your lineup like the the lower salary players especially need to hit higher value multipliers because they can so like let's just say you have a minimum price player on DraftKings he's 3k if he's only giving you 15 points and you're trying to win a tournament that's really not going to get it done because and any player in the NFL is capable of scoring you know 25 you know, 27 points. So that minimum price 3K player also needs to be giving you, you know, some something in there. So his multiplier really needs to be more like, you know, 8, 9x, you know, to, to get to where you're going. So that's why, in a nutshell, that's why you don't want to to just use one linear value multiplier for everything. Um, The reason you're using a Le'Veon Bell or any high price player is for their floor, not their ceiling. What you're supposed to do is then find the minimum price players that have the high ceiling that they can vastly outscore, you know, that, that, that common value multiplier that you might be aiming for in your overall lineup. So that's problem number one. Then there's a whole other issue of the sites and every DFS site is different. Um, but FanDuel and DraftKings are actually similar in that they both price quarterbacks, um, favorably to the point where they outscore other positions and it's 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 usually pretty significant so for example you know traditionally people tend to aim for about you know 2x value 120 fandle points maybe a little more to quote unquote hit cash game value well the average quarterback usually scores about 2.4 points per dollar overall so like you can't use these 
value multipliers, um, or you can, but if you do, it's, it's, it's going to kind of lead to inaccurate decisions or lead you to some incorrect conclusions because quarterbacks are scoring a lot more. And then every position is just unique in the way, um, that it, you know, that, that position scores. So, you know, you'll have wide receivers and they'll score differently from running backs. And then you'll have tight ends, which will score differently from those two positions. And every position is really different. So you need to be kind of adjusting that, um, to target to what you're targeting, what your, what your expectation is of these different, um, positions and salary ranges. And to, to account for that, what I've done is essentially, you know, run a bunch of regressions and find the actual relationships and the slopes of these lines between all of these, you know, different salaries and price points and positions. And what you can do from there is you kind of come up with a unique baseline for every player at every position based on his position and based on his salary. And then from there, you can just, um, you know, take his projection and you subtract that baseline. You could do this for ceiling, for floor, um, or for the medium projection. And then you get a much more accurate, um, uh, way to compare players, especially at other positions and players of different salary ranges. So for example, what you usually see a lot is the cheapest quarterbacks because quarterbacks going is so bunched together. You usually see the cheapest quarterbacks at the top of all the value points per dollar rankings, or you might just see a bunch of really cheap minimum price or near minimum price running backs um, at the top or, or what have you. Well, in using like the, this new metric, um, just str- like using the value metric, you see the players that you would actually deem most valuable in a given week and the players you're really trying to get into your lineup in a given week. So I wrote an article about this on Fourth Foreign. I showed how our projections looked when you ordered them just by points per dollar. And it was, you had at running back, you had like Amir Abdullah first and, and Bilal Powell and Lamar Miller and Darren Sproles and Frank Gore and Isaiah Crowell on DraftKings, all outscoring um, or, or having more value than Le'Veon Bell. But that's not really realistic because in a given week, you know that you're trying to play Le'Veon Bell first and foremost or, you know, a player like that. And when you use a new metric, you know, Le'Veon Bell comes out number one, David Johnson comes out number two. And I think that's a lot more intuitive um, as to how we should be valuing players going forward. So I'm pretty much done with points per dollar. I don't really see a, a use for it anymore. I think uh, what happens with a lot of players that are new to DFS is they're used to looking at a uh, a list of rankings. Um, and like you said, the the problem with that, like the problem with points per per dollar, is it's it's very linear. Um, so if if I was a new player and I was looking at something like this, I would uh, probably look at the rankings list and say to you, well. They have Aaron Rodgers ranked 10 spots higher than uh, whoever it might be, whatever the quarterback you might be targeting. Um, Carson Wentz, like, how does this, um, account for missing out on those points? Right. It, it, it's all about positional scarcity and that, and it, it relates back to just same, the same way you would want to, um, kind of wait on quarterback in your traditional redraft league. It's the same thing in DFS a lot of the times at quarterback where you have the cheap quarterbacks and they all come out as, as these good values, but, but that's only because points per dollar. Um, but, but they also come out as the top ranked players at all positions because of that. And that's not realistic. So you, what you want to see is you, you, you want to see the scarcer positions come out at the top. So, you know, using the old, 
points per dollar method, you would see players, you know, just a bunch of the cheap quarterbacks in the top 20. Like maybe I think it was 11 quarterbacks would be in the top 20 if we sorted by traditional points per dollar with the four for four projections in week one. Um, and then when you used the value, the value metric, zero quarterbacks are in the top 20. And that's a lot more realistic because there's just so many um, options at quarterback. And we've talked about this in the quarterback strategy pod a few episodes ago, where there were so many options in that like six to 15 ranking range in terms of just raw points. When, when you're looking at quarterbacks who have big games that um, you don't, it's not, you don't need to be um, playing these cheap quarterbacks and thinking that they're these top values um, just over the other positions or anything like that. So it's, it, it, this might be going over some people's heads, but essentially it just comes down to the fact that the, the, the players with the highest floors and the, the players that are the most different and that give you the, the most separation are the most valuable players. Those are the Le'Veon Bells and your David Johnsons and most weeks your Antonio Browns and players like that. And those are the players that you should see on the top of your DFS rankings boards in most weeks. But with points per dollar, their salaries are so high that you would never, uh, essentially never see that. Especially on DraftKings where the the difference between the minimum and the maximum is so great. On FanDuel, it's a little closer together. So sometimes you can still uh, see a more accurate um ranking list on FanDuel, but DraftKings especially, I think it, it just drives people nuts because you get into these dilemmas and you, you psych yourself out. Should I play Le'Veon Bell? Should I not? And I we talked about this, but, you know, Le'Veon Bell's odds of hitting, you know, his cash game target are just so much higher than any other player. Yeah, I think even if, I, I don't think it's going a lot of people over a lot of people's heads. I think even for a, a newer DFS player that you can kind of wrap your head around the idea of comparing it to uh, something like redraft and, and talking about positional positional scarcity and the best way to um, accrue value is just by looking at what the impact of your uh, of each player has to your overall lineup instead of uh, looking at players in a vacuum. I think even uh, the newest players can at least understand that concept, even if they don't know exactly how you're calculating it. I think by by reading those articles, you can get a pretty quick idea of um, what the value means, and then we we lay it out uh, very intuitively in the lineup generator. You literally can just click the value; it's right next to points per dollar and you can see where the different li- difference lies. I think where uh, people really get lost is projecting value and points to tournaments because even the best uh, value or ceiling projections are going to be, uh, it's it's going to be really hard to capture what the uh, what the upside of a lineup looks like, especially because we have this uh, psychological barrier. We, I think people see teams that win the millionaire and uh, their first thought is like, who would ever play that guy? But uh, the, the art part about GPPs or, or tournaments and DFS is that you have to go beyond projections. You have to go beyond uh, who you think is a good player, which offenses are the best. And probably at, as important, if not more important, is understanding uh, ownership in GPPs, understanding how to leverage that, and how that ultimately unfolds into uh, winning lineups beyond projection. So can you talk a little bit about how we are trying to grasp those numbers in metrics at 444? 
definitely. So it starts with going even beyond the value metric that I just talked about because, you know, well, that's a, a lot better than points per dollar. Um, I, I still think it's not as intuitive as it could be because what you're really trying to figure out when you're creating a DFS lineup and when you're ch- deciding between alternatives is what is the probability of this working versus this working, you know, so what is the probability of option A working versus the probability of option B working or with option A being either one player or a combination of players or whatever. And so what the first step in figuring out the the whole GPP leverage equation is just assigning a probability to uh, being successful by choosing a certain player. So the way we can arrive at how, you know, what is the probability of a player hitting X value is, again, we first need to find a, a kind of expectation, a baseline. So just the same way that you can kind of find the average expectation for players at a certain position given a certain salary, what you can also do is you can find the average expectation for pretty much any, uh, point total or any, you know, winning lineup average that you want. So, and there's many ways to do this, but the way I decided to do it was, and since ownership is the most important in these large field GPPs, I just took, you know, the most, the largest field GPP on FanDuel and DraftKings, which is the Sunday Million on FanDuel and the uh, Millionaire Maker on DraftKings. And I looked at all the winning lineups over the past two years for every position. I ran regressions on the the salaries and the amount of points that each position scored and what that does is gives you a, a a line with a slope and from there you can look at you can you can get a based on a player's salary and his position you can get essentially a, a, a target score for for players in GPPs and you know to give an example of how this is more intuitive than you know using points per dollar or even projected ceiling or ceiling points per dollar or any type of value plus minus or anything like that is okay so let's say on DraftKings we have a a running back that costs minimum price three thousand dollars you know if if you want to have a good shot at, at, at finishing in first place he needs to score about 28 points now a nine thousand dollar running back he needs to score about 31 points. So you can already see how flat that is compared to, to, to how, you know, people traditionally think of value where it's like, okay, that three, you know, $3,000 running back, you know, would only need 15 points. Like, no, that $3,000 running back needs about an eight, you know, a, he needs to about nine X, a little over nine X it. Whereas that $9,000 running back only needs, you know, about three and a half X. So from there, we can now figure out the probability because we project floor, ceiling, and median projections, not just median. So once you have floor, ceiling, and medium, median projections, there, you essentially have, uh, you know, a, a distribution. Now, to project probability, what you need to do is, it's essentially a normal distribution calculation. And all that means is that there, whatever your median value is, whatever your average value is, um, one standard deviation away is going to be, you know, is going is going to have a certain probability assigned to it, um, on each side, and then two standard deviations away is going to have a, another probability assigned to it. Um, you might have learned about it in school. It's that sixty-eight, ninety-five, ninety-nine rule. I'm not going to go too crazy into the math, but essentially, 
you can use a, a, a standard normal uh, distribution calculation um, if you know the the target score, the median, and the and the and the floor ceiling. You can you can then just input that and you you come up with a percentage odds. Now the one um, difficulty with that is that most players aren't normally distributed, like their scores aren't normally dis- distributed. So what that means is, let's say Le'Veon Bell, for example. We have them projected for about 26, 27 points in week one on DraftKings. Now, normal distribution would mean, let's say his standard deviation, which is just, you know, how far each of his um, point totals every week are from the mean, from his average. Let's say that was like 10 points or whatever. That would mean that Bell's floor should be about 16, 17, and his ceiling should be about 37, 38. However, that's not actually the case. What's actually the case is that Bell rarely scores in the teens and a lot more of his scores are clustered kind of in that, in that 20 point, 25 point range. So it's, it's kind of skewed toward a little higher, um, up, you know, near his mean. But we can actually account for that to some degree because, uh, at four for four anyway, the way we calculate our floor and ceiling projections is we don't just take like an average, um, you know, mean or standard deviation, uh, standard deviation or coefficient of variation, which is the standard deviation divided by the mean. We don't just take that and say, okay, well, the average running back, you know, scores about 50% above and below his mean. So we're going to make Le'Veon Bell's floor, you know, half of his projection and we're going to make his ceiling, you know, uh, 150% of his projections. We don't, that's not the way we calculate floor and ceiling. What we do is we actually account for how well we project floor and ceiling in the first, uh, a player's, you know, a player in the first place. So let's say, you know, a player is very volatile, like a tight end, you know, 70% above and below on average. Well, if we know the, which direction those fluctuations go and we're good at projecting that, which John Paulson of 444, um, has been over these past five, six years, I think five top five or top six finishes in, in season weekly accuracy, then, that's going to shrink that range of outcomes. So, for example, whereas you might see floor ceiling projections on most sites, if Le'Veon Bell is projected for 26 um, points, you know, his floor might be, you know, 12 and his ceiling might be, you know, uh, 38 or 40 or something like that. Our projection, we have Le'Veon Bell about 27 points and his ceiling is about 33 but his floor is, is, is still about uh, 11 or 12. So we actually account for the fact that, you know, when, when we project a running back for 26, 27 points, like he's, 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 a lot of those scores are going to be distributed up there. You know, he's not just going to all, all of a sudden be hitting these like, um, 50 point games, like, but we can very, um, confidently say that when we're projecting, you know, these players, you know, this is their floor, this is their ceiling, cut down on those range of outcomes, account for some of that, you know, non-normal distribution and the skews to either side of the tail. Um, and that in turn helps us, um, project the, uh, project the odds then of a player hitting his target score in cash games or in GPP. So, you know, we also did the cash game target score. So, um, from there, if you're looking for leverage, you just say, okay, well, what is Le'Veon Bell's odds of hitting GPP value? What are the odds of every other running back on the slate hitting GPP value? And then from there, you just take Bell's odds, divide it by all of the available players' odds, and you get, you get it, a, a, like how, an implied ownership percentage. So, you know, how much should Le'Veon Bell be owned given positional scarcity and his odds of hitting value? And what you'll get is, you know, it, 
kind of an implied ownership percentage. So, for example, um, you know, Le'Veon Bell has about a a 34% chance of hitting his GPP score. Now, that actually implies an ownership where his ownership should actually be um, around above you know, what we project for him, which is we, we have him projected right now for about 30, 35% ownership, um, in week one. And his ownership should actually be higher than that based on the availability of similar players uh, with similar odds. So from there, you just divide what, you know, what his ownership should be by, um, by what his actual ownership projects to be. And you get a number where one is the average and above one is, you know, that means it, it would be optimal to have more exposure to the field. And a number below one would mean you'd want to fade that player to some degree. And just to, however, you know, whatever the degree of that number is above or below one, you know, that's, you know, how, how much you want to fade or play that player. Um, I call it GPP leverage score. It's up on 444.com. I wrote a whole article about it. So you could check that out if you're more, uh, interested in it, but it really helps to kind of quantify, you know, when you should be playing and when you should be fading people. And I think it kind of flies in the face of people who just say, well, if a player is going to be owned in 25% of honest, he's an auto fade. Or if a player costs, you know, 9K or 9.5K, um, he's an auto fade because he, he'll never hit, you know, 4X value or something like that. Whereas really, it's a case-by-case basis. Now, most players aren't Le'Veon Bell. A lot of times you will see players with high ownership with leverage scores below one, as it should be. But there are certain times when certain players are just, uh, you know, have such good odds of scoring, you know, a certain amount of points. They have such high floors um, and they just, just their standard deviations are so low that, you know, we can be very confident that these players are going to, to hit a certain score. And, you know, that's really what fantasy is all about. It's, you know, maximizing your odds. Um, so that's why we just need, in general, we all just need to be thinking about things in terms of probability, um, more so than just like a points per dollar or, or plus minus or anything like that. Sure. That, that's a lot of really, really good stuff. If, if anybody wants a uh, supplement or a recap of everything you just covered, the, the article is called GPP Leverage Scores Balancing Value with Ownership in DFS. That's on 444.com. I would really encourage everyone to check that out. The way, the way I would suggest using it is go through, read the GPP Leverage Score article, and then go look at the GPP Leverage Score report. Uh, that'll really give you an idea of how all of this works together. And then what you're probably going to want to end up doing is going back, reading that GPP leverage score article again, after you've digested it, played with the leverage, uh, actual leverage scores a little bit. And what it's really just going to show you is what we hear thrown around so much as I want to be overweight or underweight on a player. I don't think that I've seen it quantified anywhere, at least in a sense in a way that makes sense or that is um, actionable. And that's exactly what this does. It says how much a guy should be owned, how much he probably is going to be owned, and then how much you should own him relative to the field. So really, it's just taking all of this confusion about building a cheap GPP portfolio, especially if you're someone that likes to max enter contests and quantifying it for you. Uh, we are running a little bit short on time, but I, I do want to clarify one thing. If you do look at the GPP leverage scores, um, what you're going to notice is you're going to see uh, a lot of uh, either very cheap or very low owned players with very high leverage scores. And then you're going to see someone uh, that's popular like Le'Veon Bell with what looks like 
a low-ish leverage score, but if it's 1.5 compared to DJ who's around one or just under one, uh, that's a pretty big difference. So Chris, do you want to give a quick note on why we see those cheaper or really low on players with really high leverage scores and then popular or expensive players without them, uh, especially for those that uh, might not be familiar with how ownership works? Yeah, so the leverage score essentially is telling you how how much you want to own a player relative to the field, taking into account, you know, uh, assuming essentially ownership to every single player on a slate. So it's a, so for example, um, if if Leonard Fournette has a leverage score of six, you know, that's pretty high. But we only project Leonard Fournette, you know, for about you know one one or two percent ownership. So all that means is that you should be optimal exposure would be about 12% ownership to Leonard Fournette. That's all that means, you know, 6%, you know, six times as much as the field. Now, as you mentioned, TJ, it's going to, it's, it's, you're going to have to take some salary into account here. So the way, and I go over this uh, very thoroughly in the articles about exactly how to use this um, in the confines of building your salary cap and using all of your salary cap, which is, you, you can take any player pool you want. You can use GPP leverage score to help you select the player pool in the first place. But I think the best way to use it is actually to, you know, you kind of narrow down your player pool. Maybe you use it to find a couple of high leverage plays that you want to incorporate. You know, you can find the most contrarian plays. But then what you do is you, with the players you already have in your player pool now, you can take the leverage scores and you can weight them. You can weight your exposure by the leverage score. So for example, to make sure you get, you know, you're probably going to want to get, you know, two players above, let's say 7K on DraftKings every week. You know, you can't, if you, if you have any less, you're not going to be using all your cap space. Um, what you would do is you would build the player pool of, you know, players at that price range or above, and then you'd use the GPP leverage scores to weight those players. So if you have Le'Veon Bell with a 1.5 and DJ's only at, you know, a 0.8, then you're, you're going to be, essentially it's going to tell you, okay, well, your, your best move leverage wise is to be more exposed to, to, to Bell than to DJ. And it's going to tell you exactly how much. And you could do this for any salary range, for any position, any way you want to use it. So there's many ways to use it. Um, but, but yeah, just go check out the article. Um, and, and it, I know it's a lot of, it's a, it's a new concept, but it's called, um, GPP leverage scores, balancing value with ownership in DFS. And the GPP leverage scores are available to four for four DFS subscribers. Before we get out of here, TJ, we're, we're adding something new to the pod this year. Um, it's something that I've heard a lot of other pods do, and I'm stealing your idea. Um, Daily Fantasy Edge does it. No, shout out to those guys. A great podcast. Go listen to them. I'm um, always enjoy at the end. They do a couple of bold calls. And I think it's really fun, really cool way to end the podcast. So again, go listen to Daily Fantasy Edge podcast too. Um, one of, one of my favorite DFS podcasts. Um, but we're going to do a bold call for a player and then a bold call for a game every week, um, for, for, for this season and going forward. So TJ, why don't you start us off? Who's your bold call for uh, a player? I meant, I mentioned Marcus Mariota at the top of the pod in a game with one of the highest over-unders, one of the best red zone passers in the league. He has one of the best red zone receivers in the league now and my favorite player of all time. My bold call for week one is Eric Decker scores three touchdowns against the Raiders. Love it. Now, my bold call, I was going to go a bunch of different ways and the player I was about to mention, you kind of already talked about him, so I'm going away from him. And what I'm going to say is Sammy Watkins leads all wide receivers in fantasy scoring in week one 
multi-touchdown game for Sammy. Jared Goff, Sean McVay, it pays off. Even if the offense isn't fully there yet, Colts without Vontae Davis, they're going to struggle to uh control the ball. I think there'll be enough chances for Watkins to go off, and we've seen him kind of do damage on limited targets in run-heavy offenses before in Buffalo. So that's my bowl call for a player. Sammy Watkins leads all wide receivers in fantasy scoring in week one. TJ, what about your bowl call for a game? Uh, Carolina's trying to implement a new offensive system and asking Cam Newton, who already struggles throwing the ball, to throw a new way with Christian McCaffrey. I think it's going to take a little bit of time for this offense to adjust to the new scheme, and it's just an erratic offense. There's volatility from year to year. There's volatility from game to game. Uh, traveling across the country, I think uh, Shanahan has a nice coming out party and upsets Carolina in week one. I really like that call. I do think the 49ers will be competitive this year. Even if they lose a lot of games, I don't think they'll be uh, historically bad in run defense again this year. I think they'll be a lot smarter of a team than they were under Chip Kelly. And, you know, I really like that call. My bowl call is a call that might ruffle some some feathers with a lot of people in terms of their uh, GPP exposures. But my bowl call is that Raiders-Titans, which has an over-under of uh, it, it's it's been above 50 uh, most of the offseason I, I believe it's still around 51 as we record this my bowl call is that that game's total will end up under 30 points combined for both of those teams I think that the Tennessee Titans can run the ball have some long drives and then when you look at the other side of the ball Oakland we, they should be able to run a decent amount Tennessee was one of the better teams in run defense last year, but Oakland still was able to get over 100 yards on them in the last meeting. Their offensive line is really good. But another reason why this game could just be full of these long, drawn-out drives is because Derek Carr, for as good as he has become or as good as he's turning into 28-6 to touchdown interception ratio a season ago, Derek Carr was only 18th in passing yards per attempt at 7.0. So Carr could, you know, he, he's not necessarily just, you know, bombing away, you know, one shot kill and, and giving the ball back to the other team. They're, the Raiders can go on some long uh, drives, some sustained drives. Now they got Marshawn Lynch. We know he's a sustainer. The offensive line is sustainers on the other side, DeMarco Murray, same deal. So that's my prediction. I'm, I'm looking at something like a 17-10 type of game, 17-13. I'll go with 21-0 and Decker gets all three touchdowns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, that works. You know, both of our bowl calls hit. So we'll see how it, these turned out last week. We, we can track them all season long just to have some, some extra fun on the pod. But I hope you enjoyed week one DFS MVP. If you're a new listener, um, thank you for tuning in. Please subscribe to the podcast. We'll be bringing the heat all season long throughout the last week of the playoffs. As long as you can play NFL DFS, we will be doing a weekly podcast. Follow TJ Hernandez on Twitter at TJ Hernandez. Follow myself, Chris Raybon, on Twitter at Chris Raybon. Be sure to check out that 444.com DFS subscription. That's the number four, the letters F-O-R, and the number four.com. Um, we got a lot of really great stuff coming out this year, about 10, 11 pieces of content, as TJ mentioned, GPP leverage scores, projected ownership, stack value reports, um, lineup generator, 
uh, cash target score odds, GPP odds, just a lot of really great tools, metrics, um, and, and useful things that will really help you um, to, to pay off that subscription really in, in one shot in, in the first week. So be sure to check that out. And any last words, TJ? Shmoney team out. Let's go week one. Let's get the shmoney my destiny release me to the streets but keep whatever's left of me jealousy is envy it's suffering is greed better be prepared when you cowards bust at me i'm busting bleed you suckers must be crazy world ain't no mercy jealous busters who can fade the thugs you thought it was but it wasn't now disappear bow down in the presence of a bullshit like blood gang banging everybody in the party doing dope slanging you got to have papers in this world you might get your first snatch before your eyes work you're doing your job Every day and then you work so hard till your hair turn gray. Let me tell you about life and about the way it is. You see, we live by the gun, so we die by the gun.